Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we are here to finally finish what we set out to do when we first heard that Paul was going to be releasing an album in September of 2018. Well, as of recording, it is now June 2019, and after today's episode, I can finally say that I have covered everything to do with Paul McCartney's Egypt Station. Before we begin though, I would like to once again thank you all for listening folks. Hopefully you all listened to my terribly depressing and sad little podcast update the, the other day and yes the output of the show has slowed a little of late but please know I'm always working on this podcast. I love this show. I'm always writing or reading around Paul and I can only thank every one of you, the listeners and patron supporters out there for all of your kind words and support during this particularly troublesome period of my life. I hope you liked our double bill of Tug of War, and I hope even more that you all enjoy the re-uploads of those somewhat error-laden episodes. Do not worry, it ain't gonna happen again. Pops of Peace is more or less ready to go, and we have a special guest lined up to help me fumble through that album review segment in that episode, and I am super excited to finally have them on also. The gears and cogs are turning, folks. Do not fret. But before we can press onwards, it seems as if we have to take a step back and maybe even backtrack. Yeah, we have even more of this Egypt Station content for you here today, folks. And no, you did not read that title wrong. The album we are here to discuss is indeed titled Egypt Station 2, written I.I. in the vein of McCartney 2, And, okay, yeah, it's not actually an album, it's more of a bonus album for two newly released editions of Egypt Station that we're also going to cover. But what this means is that after this episode, outside of any songs that Paul might be saving or storing for his next as-of-yet-untitled album, we will have 100% covered, reviewed, analysed, picked apart, wanked off and eviscerated all the known musical content created during those Egypt Station sessions. And by God, do we have to make sure that we finally cover this. And by God, do we have to make sure we cover this, because I'm not sure that either I as the host or you as the audience can take another Egypt Station episode, surely. Especially since I know very well for the fact that we've done about 53 bonus episodes on all things Egypt Station. You know, every and all content that has been surrounding this has been immediately set upon by this show, and maybe I could have bowed back and done all of these tracks on a future full Egypt Station episode. But hey, I hate to break tradition, plus whilst it may look like and feel like we're getting a brand new quote-unquote full album, what we're actually getting for our buck here is two brand new compositions. Just two. What? Only two? Yeah. Uh, three of these tracks we've already covered before. We're going to get an extended remix of a pre-existing song. And 
four live versions of songs from the Mothership album. Yeah, not exactly the deal of the century, is it? But more on that later, as I really should get the housekeeping out of the way before I get balls deeper into a lengthy-ass rant about the 73,000 different releases, re-releases, editions, collections, anthologies and compilations that exist of Egypt Station. Housekeeping! Obviously, the best way to get in contact with the show is through our email, which is paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Haven't got any emails to read out for you today, folks, unfortunately. Always, I'm chomping at the bit to read out correspondence that I receive for this show. It is always of the highest quality. And most important of all, it is oh so comforting to know that there are so many of you who are as absolutely crazy about Paul McCartney as I am. It is very reassuring. Now, I want to hear things like your Paul McCartney stories. How did you get into Paul? Have you met him? Any times you've seen him live that were particularly fantastic? Do you want to question or counter-argue any reviews of songs that I've made? Maybe you want to warn me or recommend me a song in the future? Or maybe you just want to say hi. Either way, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com and I'll get back in touch with you right away. I love to foster a sense of community on this show. The bigger community, obviously, is our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod, where I just get to post all things Paul, every gif, poll, and hilariously silly, quote-unquote, funny comment that comes to my mind, I post there. It's also the quickest way to get into a more informal chit-chat with me, if you want to do that, as well as hear all the little day-by-day updates about the show. That's at McCartneyPod. We also have a sister blog as well, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com, where you can find all the supplementary material for this show. There's all sorts of content on there that we have not covered on this show, stuff that may never become episodes, some stuff that has later gone on to become episodes, but the content is different on there. Check out all of our articles there. All the articles cover anything that comes to my mind about Paul McCartney that I couldn't yet put to an episode, really. Stuff that I'm re-releasing and reissuing albums with different track listings, top 11 reasons why Linda McCartney doesn't suck, top 10 weirdest McCartney songs or underrated Wings tracks. I do an awful lot of top 10 lists on there. It's fantastic clickbait content, but I do try to do a few deeper articles on like Paul's relationship with John, and then I've got an upcoming one about the conjoined uh, two-part or three-part Paul McCartney songs where I do an analysis of all of those. Check all of that out at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. And finally, we come on to the bit that every podcast talks about, which is the Patreon. I'm sure if you listen to podcasts, you must know what Patreon is by now. It's the platform by which you can help support independent content creators. Obviously, this podcast doesn't have any ads or anything like that. I want to always keep it that way. You know, unless Capitol Records offers me some sort of ridiculously lucrative McCartney-esque deal. Though that's not really going to happen. So, in the meantime, you can help keep the lights running on this show and ultimately contribute towards me being able to spend more time on this show. Obviously, as you know, most independent podcasters have a full-time job and obviously the more supporters and patrons I have, the less time I have to spend in the wonderful service industry. Already though, we have a couple of patrons right now. I'm eternally grateful to them. They are the lifeblood of this show. And if you want to join them, help me keep pumping out podcasts at this steady rate, then check out the links below, patreon.com slash McCartneyPod. 
And now that is out of the way, let's crack on with the main order of business, shall we? Egypt Station 2. Right off the bat, I do need to point out that despite Egypt Station 2 being this album's official title, it was actually a fact that I was completely unaware of well into the middle of writing this episode, which is hilarious as it is damaging for the credibility of the show, but honestly, I thought this episode was going to be something called Travelling Explorers or something like that. For originally, I just knew these songs that we're going to talk about today as just the bonus tracks for not one, but two upcoming McCartney releases. One of these releases going straight to my Spotify account, which I literally stumbled across in my recommendations list. So either this release really did fly under the radar, or I just really wasn't paying attention. So, now that I was armed with the knowledge that this album did in fact exist, I swiftly proceeded to leech some Wi-Fi from a local pub house, because I didn't want to use up my data, and now here we are. I think I've made a similar point before, but the thing is, folks, I was never really planning on doing an episode purely, you know, about me doing a review of the physical copies of Egypt Station, you know, like where I actually go out and buy them and stuff. And I really don't have much of a desire to become a physical media review show. Like, I'm, I'm much more interested in the music than the packages. Even though I am a fucking sucker for a good package. Oi, keep it clean, you. You know what I meant. Moving swiftly on, and whilst I know it sounds horribly millennial and new media, but I knew that after my experience with purchasing the regular bog-standard Nothing Fancy edition of Egypt Station on vinyl, I knew that any further content for this album would just inadvertently end up on my iPhone on Spotify. So I just knew I wouldn't have to go out and buy any of it. I would just be able to review it. Or, shock of horrors, it would just be on YouTube. Or even fans out there, <laughs> very kind fans, would just send me the songs for free anyway. And I can hear some of you saying now, Oh Sam, you bore, why don't you buy any of these new versions of Egypt Station? Surely you could have put them on Instagram and Twitter and got some likes out of it. And hey, you're either rich enough to buy them all or famous enough to have Capitol Records send you them all for free. Well, I would have to reply to both of those with a sadly resounding no. I've got my copy of Egypt Station on two black vinyl discs, and that's all I need. I don't need any bonus tracks, no live cuts, no remixes, no nothing. What I want in my collection is just the album itself, because it's the album proper that I have the real emotional connection with. Now, for the benefit of those of you out there who are proficient enough with the internet to follow a Paul McCartney podcast, but not proficient enough to keep up to date with all Paul McCartney news, I'll answer the question for you right now. What are these two new editions of Paul's 17th solo studio album? Well, first we have the quote-unquote, and I am doing the fingers here, Traveller's edition of Egypt Station that came in this literal big blue suitcase. came with three vinyl discs, posters, postcards, maps, a jigsaw puzzle, a cassette, a CD, a notebook, playing cards, all of this bundled all together in a suitcase, a literal suitcase. You could put all this in it and carry it, and even just by the size of a vinyl disc in its packaging, you know that this thing's got to be of a, a certain sizable <laughs> heft. What is also very hefty is the price tag. On McCartney's own site, where it is now out of order, 
The original price was set at $360, I think. There were only ever 3,000 units that were ever going to be made. And for those of you who haven't done the maths, 3,000 times 360 does take you to just over $1 million with $1,080,000. So that's a nice little chunk of change for Paulie there. And now that it is instantly sold out, the only copy that I could find on the UK version of eBay was going for a very handsome £520, which is in the region of 660 to 670 bucks. This was, admittedly, a very pretty collection indeed, and if it was a gift for any Paul McCartney fan, then I could only imagine the uncontrollable burst of joy on their face when you handed them this briefcase. Maybe like in a spy movie where you slide it across the floor or something. The whole thing is very in keeping with that art pop globe trotter type of aesthetic that is all very unified, very colourful, and is all presented in that high standard that all of the Egypt station physical media is. It's very cool, it's very fun, and if I had it, of course I'd be gushing all over it and rubbing all the cool little knickknacks against my ball sack and. You know, obviously, if I was to sit here on this podcast now and mock other podcasters out there who wasted $360 on this, podcasters like Tom Hunyadi, who I had on this show twice now, uh, he actually has this, and am I jealous that he's got it and I don't have it? Uh, I'm going to say no, but you can read into that what you will. But even if I had the money, folks, even if I had the money, would I buy this? Would I fuck? I wasn't going to buy this when it was the equivalent of £280 in the UK, and, you know, I'm even less likely going to give a shit now when it's 520 I mean, what do you actually get? Yes, a lot of it has a certain nostalgic quality, and it's special because it's rare, but you don't actually get anything of resale value at all, except to another collector in the future. And that is a very uncertain market. That is going to be what people want to pay for it. What we get is a ridiculous Kanye West-esque markup, where it just doesn't feel worth it. The stuff that you actually get in it, 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 it just feels a little cheap, and a little bit something like an adult loot crate. Uh, for those of you who don't know, loot crates like this nerdy subscription service where you get this literal loot crate. It's a little cardboard box that comes in the post and you open it and it comes with loads of memorabilia and t-shirts and posters and postcards of all of your favourite nerd stuff and you get it every month. And it, it's, only, it, it's only a couple of quid, a couple of bucks every month. And no, don't worry, I'm not being paid by Loot Crate to fucking plug them or anything. It's actually not a particularly good service. The comparison that I'm actually trying to draw is that it's a bunch of tut that you can just chuck in arbitrarily and say it's a collection and wham, you've got some brand new content that makes the album worth buying, I suppose. Is that how it's supposed to work? Value for money is really something that I strive towards whenever I do a review of something like a re-release. You know, I don't really particularly include prices of albums in the initial album review, but when it's something like this, something that I can tangibly work with, I just can't help but feel like I'm not getting my bang for my buck. Or do I just have to face the fact that I'm not in the desired financial demographic for this particular release? I mean, yeah, maybe if Paul handmade all the postcards in it or something, I don't know. Or even if, like, in you know, in reality, maybe if there was, like, something signed in there or something a little bit unique, then maybe that could justify the price. But 
It's definitely one of the most outrageously priced pieces of official like memorabilia and official product from an artist that I've ever seen. Especially since it doesn't come with a big fucking comprehensive book that covers all of the Egypt Station session. That's something that's particularly missing, shockingly missing from such a comprehensive collection of tut. Obviously stuff at a concert and a gig is going to be overpriced, but the prestige Paul McCartney quality here has been pushed just a little bit too far with $360. However, I think a lot of the people at MPL, at Capital and in McCartney's own camp noticed a certain, I wouldn't say backlash, I wouldn't call the view that I have to be representative of a community backlash or anything like that, but I think there was a little grumble, a little rumble that people were upset that they weren't going to be able to hear the new songs off this edition especially since it was only going to be 3,000 made anyway, and I've been to a gig where there were more than 3,000 Paul McCartney fans there. So, yeah. Not the most inclusive thing, is it? So, they released the Explorers edition of Egypt Station. So, after the Travellers edition of Egypt Station, you could get the Explorers edition, which is much easier to stomach at around £55 slash $70, and this is just basically all of the musical content from the Traveller's Edition, but without all the extraneous tat and clutter that you get in that big suitcase. By name, you might think the Explorer's Edition might come with a machete, a compass, colonialism, and venereal disease for the locals. But no, this is just the music, and even doing this episode for you folks right now, I can tell you that I am certainly a lot more tempted by this one. And not just because the Traveller's Edition has completely sold out all over the world, it is because morally this is the edition that I can work with. <laughs> I've got my copy of Egypt Station, I love it, but, you know, there is that little devil sat on my shoulder that's saying, Sam, buy Egypt Station again, but with different album artwork that totally doesn't look like an Instagram filter over the original painting or anything. Cough, cough, cough. I might consider getting this album one day. I might. After all, I am an ostensive collector of crap and tut in my own right, and I don't want you to think that if I didn't have a greater amount of disposable income that I wouldn't have snapped up more Paul McCartney vinyl, because you know as well as I know I really would have. And I love collecting this stuff. I really do. I have so much fun rifling through bargain bins and going to old record shops and seeing what McCartney stuff they've got in. The same can be said for Tom Waits as well. But the question I really want to ask all of you folks here today, here today, is how much more money, how much more money is McCartney, Capital and MPL going to try and squeeze out of the McCartney fan base with content from the Egypt Station sessions? Like, how much is too much? I know we had the same thing with New, whereby New had the regular album edition, the Japanese edition, the deluxe edition, and the collector's edition. So this isn't anything exactly new, pardon the pun, but I really wasn't an, an active Paul McCartney fan at that time, so I really can't give my two cents on that. And if New had this kind of promotion and re-release schedule that Egypt Station does, then why did it not go to number one in the same way? Well, outside of getting into the different musical landscapes of those two times, I think the answer is simple. And it's two words. 
Capitol Records. In the same way that we saw McCartney's media arm ramp up a notch after signing with Capitol Records, we have seen a similar step up in game of the guys who actually make all of Paul McCartney's physical media. So now I'm just going to quickly run through all of the releases that we've had for Egypt Station. And before you start typing no, I am not making any of this up. There really are going to be this many editions of Egypt Station. So first of all, we had the regular old CD and vinyl versions. This was pretty par for the course stuff. This was the release that you'd find in most of your shops. Then we had the vinyl releases that were all different colored discs. Like there was a blue one, a green one, an orange one. And even some of those colours, or even additional colours, were exclusive to Barnes & Noble. Then you had the deluxe edition of Egypt Station. Or for many of you out there, it would have been called the Target exclusive or HMV exclusive version of Egypt Station. Which was the regular album plus Get Started and Nothing for Free. Then there were the coloured versions of the deluxe editions. Possibly three different colours from the originals, but honestly, I, I couldn't give a toss. I'd never buy any of them. Also, randomly, in the middle of all of this, there was a cassette version of this album released. Now, that is a rare one. I'm not sure under what circumstances that was released, but that does seem like more of a promotional release. Then, finally, some six months since the original September release date, we were gifted with the Explorer's Edition and Traveller's Edition of Egypt Station. Obviously, I've gone through everything that was released on those editions earlier in the episode. But, I mean, what's left? The Globetrotters edition that comes complete with its own fucking train or something? Retail price, $375,000? Now, at the end of all this, am I saying that these 82 million editions of Egypt Station are part of some sort of great album charts con or money swindle? No. Well not, well, not quite anyway, but it does highlight a couple of things about the Paul McCartney fanbase that I find personally interesting. The Great Paul McCartney Money Swindle! All of these different editions of Egypt Station are such a reaction to the fact that Paul McCartney has this massive fanbase. And fanbase so big that it's the largest collection of collectors. You know, even the most basic average Macca fan is addicted to hoarding Beatles stuff, Paul McCartney and Wings stuff. All of this crap is inherently very collectible in terms of memorabilia. And there's just such a variety. There's physical media, there's print media, there's film, there's music, documentaries, interviews, pins, figurines, pens, you name it. There is something of it to collect for Paul McCartney. And Capitol Records knows very well that the average Paul McCartney collector is not going to be satisfied if they only have one of the six editions of Egypt Station. In fact, they know that there'll be some people out there so avid a collector that they will buy each of the coloured editions of the album. So they'll have the orange, the blue, the green, the yellow, the white one. They'll buy the original one, the deluxe one, Traveller and Explorer. Which, when you compare to the average album sale, which is an illegal download, which is entirely for free, you can see how Capitol Records might want to be capitalising on those people who are going to be buying this stuff multiple times. Like, the Venn diagram of 
people who are buying Paul McCartney vinyl and people who buy a lot of Paul McCartney vinyl is going to be a very congruent, almost entirely overlapping circle. There's not someone who's out there who's like, oh, you know, I just bought Egypt Station and then I kind of just left it at that, really. Of course not. They know who we are. They know our fandom. They know that we're going to be biting at the bit to hear just another song, to hear just another bit of content. It's like films when they release the Blu-ray another month later after the DVD release and it's got an extra deleted scene or a scene that wasn't in the cinematic cut. You go out and you buy it again. It's the exact same principle except that with Paul McCartney fans, the price is stepped up a bit. And the reason for this is the same reason that the Beatles stuff is still so expensive to buy in shops today. And that's because Paul is a prestige act. He can still release an album and call it £30 on vinyl and no one's going to bat an eyelid. But someone who can pay £30 for a vinyl, or $45 for a vinyl, is certainly going to be tempted by a $70 vinyl. Paul hasn't put out any new content technically or recorded any new content technically as far as we are aware since Egypt Station but Capitol Records isn't going to have that and they are now going to fill in that gap with another tempting offer for this fan base and is there a class element involved here you know um, are people who typically collect vinyl do they display more disposable income on average because vinyl is on a big comeback, and I'm going to come on to the point of age soon, and the age of the Paul McCartney fan base. I want to talk about that for a moment. But vinyl is also very large with a younger fan base as well. But is that young crowd buying Egypt Station? I am not too sure. But I do think the point with vinyl and vinyl in general, and the reason I'm talking about vinyl specifically is because that's what is really being pushed by Capital here, is that all vinyl in itself, in this modern world, in this world of instant download, is now a prestige item in itself. So when you throw Paul McCartney into the mix, you get the prestige of the prestige. It seems to make sense as a response to torrenting and downloading. You know, you, you can get Egypt Station Explorers Edition and listen to Frank Sinatra's party for free. Not, 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 not for free, but... Because you don't get nothing for free! That's a little reference there for those of you who have read ahead on this episode. But yeah, as I was saying, you know, you can listen to that immediately on Spotify, right away, ready to go. Or, alternatively, if you want the prestige experience, if you want to prove you are a real Paul McCartney fan, then you can jack that right up to 70 bucks, 60 pounds. And you will pay for that pleasure. Is it entirely worth it? Probably not. But just look at Paul McCartney's ticket prices. You know, the man is still charging an arm and a leg, even for the nosebleeder seats right at the top. That caused me to have panic attacks. But hey, and while the Paul McCartney live experience does feel like it's worth every penny, you know, Paul is putting on a three-hour live experience, that element of his career does feel like it's much more in his control. And once he kind of gives these albums over to the Sharks, they it's almost like they're free to do with it whatever they will. And there is definitely part of me that wonders whether McCartney has the same kind of involvement with these subsequent releases of Egypt Station as he does with something like the McCartney Archive collection. Now the next part is going to be a little suppositional but 
But I feel like this Egypt Station release and re-release schedule is highlighting the age bracket of the average Paul McCartney record buyer. Let's be very clear here, I'm not saying that only old people are into Paul McCartney. You could be 15 listening to this podcast, or you could be 65. I don't give a fuck. This is a podcast for Paul McCartney fans. I happen to be a 27-ish year old guy from England doing a Paul McCartney podcast. I am obviously an exception to that rule, living proof. But statistically, the lion's share of McCartney's core fan base, and, and by core fan base, I mean the people who actually go out there and buy shit, are old enough to have been young enough when Paul McCartney's career was, shall we say, a little more active and a period when album sales and the process of buying a record was actually still a thing. This means one of two things, that either they are now old enough to have a greater disposable income than younger fans who might be put off by things like the Traveller's Edition briefcase, or now that they even have kids of their own who are now buying them stuff. And secondly, it means that this is a core fan base who are more likely to be of an age who still... How should I phrase this? Be enough of a sucker to rely on physical old media. There, I said it. Yeah, I have it on vinyl. I love vinyl. I'm a, I'm the vinyl guy that everyone hates at uni. But Spotify has given me a hundredfold more Egypt Station than the record ever has or could. And whilst I am well aware that the vinyl revolution has been a wonderful boon for music and the fact that I've got stuff on vinyl that means my copy of Egypt Station will survive a nuclear holocaust if I find a suitable needle, that's great. But if you're buying vinyl as your primary source of listening to new music, I find that a little bit quaint, if I'm honest. And furthermore, how do you even have time to listen to the album properly? Like, how do you have enough hours in a day to sit down with an album? To do something like that, that's a real treat for me. You know, I'm forced, I'm relegated to having to listen to Egypt Station via earphones on my iPod. Oh, but Sam, Paul got to number one. All of his fans got him to number one. So, why are you saying physical media is so rubbish? Well, Paul didn't get to number one, did he? Like, like he did, on paper, but he didn't really. You know how, again, I want to go back to my uh, film analogy, certain films will have an opening weekend that's like five days long, and then they'll print on the following Monday, oh my god, this film has had a massive $100 million opening. Yeah, because it's been in the cinema for the period of two and a half weekends instead of one. So that's how they cook the books. And McCartney and Capital and MPL definitely cook the books with Egypt Station. And how they do this is through pre-ordering. And if you didn't know, folks, if you pre-order an album for release date, that counts as if you went to the shop, down to your local record shop, and bought it physically on the day. Now, Paul McCartney had a lot of hype surrounding this album. A lot of people wanted to buy this. Oh my god. There was so much talk about it on the forums and on the Facebook pages and on Twitter. So many people wanted to listen to this album on day one. And they all pre-ordered it en masse. Not the biggest group of people, but what they did was, in their relatively small number, play right into Capital's hands, and they did buy multiple editions of Egypt Station. They pre-ordered multiple copies. Some people quite proudly boasting that they pre-ordered, like, 
I think it was like I think it was five. I think it was five different, maybe five or six different editions that you could get specifically on release date. And the other little trick with album charts in general, as well as the Billboard 100, it doesn't count the number of people who are buying this album. It's number of albums sold. So if you've got a very dedicated fan base, a potentially aging grey fan base that still really relies and is enthusiastic about vinyl in a non-ironic, non-hipster way, who are also avid collectors of, of all things Paul McCartney that they can possibly absorb, then what you get is just like this, 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 this feeding frenzy whereby a, a relatively small number of fans can push Paul McCartney to the number one spot because each one of them is buying two or three or more copies of this album. And to the uninitiated, to those on the outside, it looks like Paul McCartney has pulled it out of the bag by releasing an album that millions of people wanted to hear. And yeah, millions of people do want to hear this album, but for the most part now, they are spread all over the world, they don't retweet, they don't hashtag, and they don't download. It's like Paul McCartney gerrymandered the album ratings or something, you know? It's more of a miraculous crowning achievement of a relatively small number of people than any great album sale return. Like, I remember articles saying, like, oh, Paul McCartney, you know, he's released a new album and all these vinyl sales are showing that music and buy music is still alive. Yeah, within his fan base, and in my experience with, with the fan base, 98% of them are either hardcore or go home. And what they did was they pre-ordered all of these albums and then they were all done. They're all done. I don't think Paul McCartney lasted that long in the number one spot. It may have literally only been one week. And then after that, relatively few people were actually going out into record shops and picking up copies of this album or downloading it on iTunes. People were pretty much just waiting to buy it on release date and then that was that. There was no real breakout single. There was no number one single or anything close to a top ten. Or anything close to a number one single. I'm not saying it's like the avatar of Paul McCartney's career or anything. Definitely within the fan base, this is going to be an album that is going to be very much adored for the remainder of history. That's what I personally feel. There are so many people who love this album. I've seen very few negative comments about it at all. So I don't think it's going to be culturally forgotten or anything. But then they just keep coming out with more and more editions of them. And I see the same people buying them. And I'm like, oh God, you know, it's almost like Capital's letting people get two more paychecks in to like bump up their account a bit. And, and then they're coming back around with the Paul McCartney tax, a bi-monthly tax where they're releasing more Egypt Station content and people are going out there and buying it and falling for it every time. If I could go back in time with the most pointless use of a time machine ever, would I go back and say, Sam, don't buy Egypt Station on vinyl when it comes out, save your money, buy the Explorers edition in six months' time? If it didn't really affect the space-time continuum all that much, then yeah, probably, I, I, I think I'd do that. You know, I remember when I was working at Morrison's, um, and the, for foreign listeners, that's uh, a British supermarket chain, when I was working on the tills there, on the checkout, I remember... Everyone was buying this box set of all the Harry Potter movies from the first film all the way up to The Deathly Hallows Part 1, which is the penultimate film in that series. And I remember selling all these box sets. It was like reduced or something, so it, it wasn't that much of, of, of an expenditure. But the last film, The Deathly Hallows Part 2, hadn't come out still by that point. And I was just thinking, these idiots, they're buying this box set 
of all but one of the films. Then they're going to buy the last film, Deathly Hallows Part 2, on DVD when that comes out. So then they're going to put it all together and have this box set and then a separate DVD on its own. And then six months later after that, when they release the full box set, these I'm going to be selling that same box set to these same fucking idiots. And no word of a lie, that is what happened. Don't know their names, don't know their faces, but it definitely happened. But maybe if those box sets had some bonus content, then maybe it was worth it. The issue I have with Egypt Station 2 as an album, as a collection of new material, is that it barely has any new content on it at all. Like, I'm really struggling to picture what kind of fan would be totally satisfied by all of this. You can't look at the entire track listing and think that there wasn't a missed opportunity somewhere or that they're not holding something back. Like, I did all of those hot take episodes quite a while back where I was trying to make content as quick as Paul could churn out random release snippets of bonus content from Egypt Station on YouTube. You know, songs here and there. And he's been basically experimenting with how he's going to be releasing Egypt Station 2. We've been experiencing it before we even had the chance to buy it. And as I alluded to earlier, before I had to interject myself with the housekeeping segment, we do just get two new songs that we've never heard before. Okay, two and a bit. That's it. Just two songs and an extension of a pre-existing track that really isn't much of a remix at all. Again, not telling Capitol Records how to do their job or anything. And this is something that I touched on uh, with my Glitter and Doom review for my Tom Waits podcast down in the hole. Go check that out where I, I talked about how poor of a, a release that was for its bonus content as well. But I, for one, would be certainly a lot more interested in Egypt Station if all of the tracks and songs like Get Started, Nothing For Free and Get Enough were 100% brand new content for me to listen to. I don't know why this stuff was released on YouTube. Was it just to keep our beaks wet? Like, we're not going to lose interest. We're avid Paul McCartney fans. We're spending fucking too much money on these albums anyway. I think the hype would have been much more real if there had been five brand new songs and an extension ready to go. Then, you know, it's the fact that there's just like kind of four obligatory live songs that like, you know, they are there. I'm going to talk about them later as well. But where are the remixes? Why, why hasn't Paul gone to all of the producers and DJs out there who, who would have been ready to claw each other's genitalia off at the chance to remix some brand new Paul McCartney material? Where are all of the alternative takes? Are you telling me that Greg Kirsten and Ryan Tedder between them couldn't pull together a single alternative vision for how some of these songs might sound? And where are all the early demos? All of the little snippets of Paul doing it on his guitar alone in his house. All of those wonderfully intimate moments as we can see a song taking shape and being born. And he really doesn't do that. And instead he, he, he just fills it with these live versions that really didn't bowl me over. And all of that together, as it stands, means that my perceived value of Egypt Station 2 as a collection of content is woefully below the belt for me. The two new songs are really cool, the two new songs are, are really interesting, and I can't wait to talk about them shortly. But, you know, despite the fact that I wasn't exactly on the pulse with the release of this one, I was still aware that some brand new Paul McCartney content was on its way, and that there were going to be some new unreleased songs, and I did have some genuine hype for this. And the final product that I get uh, has fallen short from the mark, and I know all of these things do 
things rarely ever live up to the hype, but it feels a bit more tangible here. You know, the Paul McCartney Archive Edition re-releases have been so fantastic, and it doesn't make sense why this isn't up to that same quality. Yeah, maybe there are, there are some people out there who didn't listen to a lot of this stuff, but the people who would be excited about a Traveller's Edition and Explorer's Edition of Egypt Station would have heard those songs and would have known about them. So I'm very confused by this release. If those three songs were behind this price tag as new songs, five new songs, four live ones, and who cares, having a little extension, then maybe that price tag could have been justified a little. But for some reason, they decided to devalue this album. They decided to devalue the re-releases for people on the fence like me. You know, the people who were going to buy the Traveller's Edition wonderfully lovable fools like Tom Hunyadi were always going to buy the Traveller's Edition. That was never going to be a question for them. But, but I would have snapped up the Explorer's Edition of Egypt Station on vinyl 100%. I certainly would have if Get Started, Nothing For Free and Get Enough were songs that I hadn't heard before. Going back to another film analogy, it's like one of those trailers that just gives away the whole fucking film. The three songs that I mentioned that we've already reviewed on this show, I am going to briefly touch on them all again, because I wanted to give Egypt Station 2 its fair due, but mostly it'll be about their placement on the album and their inclusion and my thoughts since those initial reviews. So with that in mind, please do go back and check out all of the previous bonus Egypt Station content that I've released in the six months since its release, if you haven't already, because I'm sure some of my opinions will have morphed slightly over time. But it really isn't long enough in the way that all of my opinions on Paul McCartney's music change over time. It hasn't been enough time to do a proper deep dive on those tracks, so I won't. The Traveller's Edition of Egypt Station would finally be released on May 10th, and the Explorer's Edition was released May 17th, 2019. Right, with all of that in mind, let's crack on with Egypt Station 2. What delights behold us on this third disc of Egypt Station content? Get started! I'm sure I made this joke the last time we covered this song about how we were quote-unquote, starting this episode this way. But I thought this time I might try and think of something a little more witty to say, you know? Um, let me see. Uh... Nope, nope, I'm not. Let's get started with Get Started. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, I've never made an album before, I've never made a bonus album before, and I certainly haven't done anything in my miserable life that would warrant me being able to tell you how to do your job, or anything along those lines. But fuck me, Paul, you really didn't start this bonus disc off well at all. This is one of those songs that gets better as it goes along, admittedly, 
but it does have the single worst kind of opening 30 seconds of any song from the entire Egypt Station Sessions. Of course I knew they were going to include this song on this bonus album, but they really didn't have to start it off this way, did they? I'm not entirely sure what McCartney is saying about this song by making it the opening number, because not only is it a disservice to the whole collection, but it also presents the song in a way where it makes you wonder whether this is a crafted collection of songs in a particular order at all, or whether it's just a truly random mix of all the supplementary material just chucked on a disc for the sake of it. Yeah, I know the song is called Get Started, and it kind of makes sense, I suppose, to have it at the start of the album, but it doesn't work in terms of tone or feel or anything. There's no real energy to this song. It doesn't grip you. You know, you're just moving through it. And yeah, there has already been a third of an episode dedicated to me ragging on the majority of this song and how it's a woefully directionless number with all these cod Beatles guitar flourishes that do not land with the same grace that they do on the Mother album and how it's only the out-of-nowhere, surprisingly fun, heavy-ish Macca metal ending that's of any real worth. You've heard all this before. And you know what? None of those opinions have changed whatsoever. And it's probably the only song in the entire Egypt Station canon that I've genuinely never gone back and sought out to revisit. It's just left little to no impression on me whatsoever, and I struggle to view it as anything other than just this total corny misfire. It's great that it's on the album, and obviously I'm never going to deride Paul for giving me more content, but it should be way back there in the arse end of the album, not as this grand introduction to a couple of extra destinations en route to Egypt Station Major. As it stands, this is one of those songs that only interests me, being in that it's part of my own personal little collection of fascinating McCartney what-ifs. Just these moments where it's like, oh, okay, McCartney was working with these kinds of sounds and he could have gone in this kind of direction. And there are parts of the song that I, you know, I hope he kind of pursues and the majority I hope he abandons entirely. And I'm glad that he still has this exploratory process that he works with. I'm also very glad that he got this song out of his system and happier still that he didn't include it on the actual album itself. And, like I said last time, it does stand as an interesting hint at a heavier sound that Paul may have wanted to take the album in the same way that Paul may have wanted to take the album in a popular direction that we're going to talk about later as well. Obviously, Paul had done Cut Me Some Slack with Servana not too long before, and the end of this track always makes me think of Servana and what a project that could be for Paul's next album, like a really heavy one with that raspy, throaty vocal that he gives in that song. So yeah, I'm very glad I'm finished with Get Started. Moving on. Nothing for free. Next up on Egypt Station 2, we have, we have another song that we've already heard before. Unless you're, of course, one of the absolute losers that doesn't listen to this podcast religiously. This song was released in conjunction with Get Started, and both were released for free, which is strange considering the title... This is nothing for free.
As I've said, this is another song that we've covered here on the show before. And now that I've had a, a little bit more time to put some distance between me and the release of the initial supplementary material for Egypt Station, I've been able to warm to the song even more. Not that I was particularly harsh on this tune the last time I reviewed it, if I remember correctly. Um, I know that I placed it above Get Started back then too. I still do. The only thing that has changed now is that I've listened to Egypt Station proper, the, the Mother album, innumerable times now. And the filler tracks on that album have become all the more apparent to me. There's a real lull in the middle of that record between kind of Fur You and Dominoes. And a song like Nothing For Free really could have added a little bit of pep, a shot of adrenaline to the, to the middle that the Mother album not desperately needs, but really could kind of use. For me, it was everything that Get Started wasn't. And I know a lot of people like Get Started. I know quite a few of you out there in the fan base really dug that song. But for me, it's so an undeniably turgid experience that when I come on to the next song, Nothing for free, and I get that perfect mid-90s radio-friendly feel. It just acts as the perfect antidote to what I saw as a, a Macca musical dead end. This song is one of two productions from Ryan Tedder that ended up being relegated to the bonus disc, and what it highlights is that Paul was certainly trying to be a little more out there, with more modern, more risky material, whilst working in tandem with Tedder. You know, he had Greg Kirsten in the bang to do a whole album's worth, and then he has Tedder in doing this little side project that, if it all goes horribly wrong, it can just be dropped without a worry. Of course, I worship the ground Greg Kirsten walks on for what he's given Paul. But over the course of these episodes, I'm starting to realise that the work Paul did with Tedder was some of the most interesting material from those sessions. Being a Tedder track, it has a very unique sound within the whole Egypt Station concept. And whilst Kirsten is far superior at the more prestige McCartney ballads and acoustic numbers and the rockers, Tedder and Macca have a certain rapport, it seems, when it comes to silly pop. And silly McCartney pop is right up my alley, as you all know. Again, straight up pop was oddly sparse on the final album, with the only exception, funnily enough, being Tedder's own Fur You. So maybe the idea that Egypt Station 2 is the pipes of peace of the Egypt Station sessions may not be a poor as a comparison as I first thought. It seems that the majority of the lightweight, silly and less prestige McCartney material has been pre-designated as the, the material that's going to be on this release. And when it comes to songs like Nothing For Free being frivolous and lightweight and silly, I'm totally fine with that. I'm always singing this song regularly on the way to work. Again, quite shocking how fucking catchy and sing-alongable Egypt Station is when compared to many of his albums over, say, the last 20 years. And even in the cold cuts, we're still finding hooks and choruses to worm their way into our brains, which is fascinating. This is also another one of those McCartney songs that are somewhat low-key strange. Like, this isn't Check My Machine or anything, but there are so many little bits where... It, it's these little sparks of madness and creativity that I just love. And I'm filled with such excitement whenever they crop up. Because you know that no other artist could or would pull off moves like that. Even the very opening sounds of this song, you hear that... Okay, okay, okay. 
it, it, it's just so what the fuck and random in a fun way that doesn't distract you from the song just invites you into this crazy little world. Oddly enough, I've actually been listening to the lyrics a lot more this time around. And what I like about them is that you really can't interpret them anywhere. They do have that great, I wouldn't say McCartney universality, but you can certainly interpret the lyrics in many ways. And like what I first kind of started to see was that maybe they had this slight undercurrent of what it's like to be a man like Paul McCartney. You know, you could see the song as expressing this inherent distrust that a man like Macca must have of everyone around him and of everyone who ever approaches him, which that's something that Macca's never really gone into before. He never really talks about his fame. You have the lyrics, I wonder why you're talking to me. I guess you must want something for free. And Paul is a massive guy of influence and he can get anything for anyone, I am sure. And I bet he is sick to death of people coming up to him and asking him for stuff. And I don't think this song has the kind of venom of a song whereby this could be him talking about autographs or anything. And it might just be a classic little case of Paul making stuff rhyme. I get that. But I think it's an, you know, it's an itty bitty window into Paul's life of leeches, opportunists, confidence men, tagalongs, hangers on, and so-called friends in the business. Or when he gets to that bit that every Macca song gets to, i.e. the part where it randomly becomes a love song and he sings, I want to tell you what it means to me. I love you every way and now and now, but I can't make up my, my, my mind. It then could be interpreted as a playful little song about a relationship or a friendship. You know, this could be seen as someone flirting with Paul in order to get something from him and he's seeing right through it. Or it could even be some kind of consistently pathetic friend in Paul's life who he has to constantly support, maybe even family. Yeah, I really could have overthought this one. It's one of the cold cuts. If it meant that much to Paul, obviously, it would definitely be on the album. But I have to think about something whilst I'm cycling in these populated areas when I can't actually sing the song. Yes, I have a penchant for an excessive love of all things hot hits and cold cuts. But this is a song that I genuinely enjoy. I enjoyed it the first time I heard it and I enjoy it more now. In fact, I, I enjoy it more every time I listen to it. In all of its horrendously, horrifically cheesy, over-the-top glory. You know how I mentioned earlier that I'd become so jaded from Paul constantly teasing me that even after seeing an album titled Egypt Station 2, I still, very intentionally, did not get my hopes up in expecting to see any McCartney 2-esque material. Well, it seems as if I've once again fallen into Paul's hands because that's exactly what I have been gifted by our most holy Saint Paul. Get your rats and pack them away for you are invited to... Frank Sinatra's party. Fuck me sideways with a yellow submarine. This is my jam. I absolutely adore this song. I love it, love it, love it. Though, it seems that Paul has this awfully strange habit of taking these 
wonderful techno oddities that are so full of life and energy and then simply relegating them to the bonus disc or the re-release or the remaster like they aren't some of the best material and soundscapes that he's working on at that time. It's so confusing. But hey, at least we have the song now. This song is pure mad Professor McCartney and I love it. Look, folks, this isn't gospel, this isn't capital, this isn't an MPL-endorsed podcast. This is just all of my own untrained, uninformed, probably wrong opinions. And that opinion states that Paul, Greg Kirsten, and Ryan Tedder got it completely wrong in the final decision not to include this song on the final album. I'm not sure who had the final say, but whoever has that blame, that will forever be their cross to bear. I mean, if we had this track and Back in Brazil on the Mothership album, I think my insatiable McCartney 2 techno addiction would have briefly been sated. Yes, I wish more than anything right now that I was invited to one of these parties thrown by the King of Croon himself, Mr Frank Sinatra. And before I just start extolling constantly all of the virtues of this song, can we just take a minute to just appreciate and think about the real-life autobiographical historical implications of this song. Nothing exactly earth-shattering, but this is Paul in his golden years, peeling back the curtain oh so discreetly of his young Hollywood high life and party scene. Like, this isn't a look into the 50s peak Rat Pack era. No, this is presumably McCartney in the late 60s, early 70s, at the peak of his own fame, being invited to these prestige high-class Hollywood events and I don't know if he's in the corner of these parties making notes or if the whole thing was just so vivid that he's able to pull it from memory but Paul was clearly soaking up all of this extremely juicy extremely stimulating arresting experiences going on all around him and was probably locking it all away subconsciously until it all spilled out onto the page for us today we get these snapshots of Sammy Davis Jr. romancing with showgirls, Angie Dickinson bumping into Peter Lawford, and Dean, called Dino by Paul here, Martin watching the girls go by from the swimming pool. It could feasibly be quite an overwhelming experience with all these big names, but since it's presented to us through the gaze of the Egypt Station macker that's kind of looking back, we get this very chilled, very relaxed atmosphere that fits the music and presumably the tone of the actual party perfectly. If anything, what happens with the descriptions for this party is that it's very understated. I don't particularly see this as a very overly fantastical, rose-tinted recollection on Paul's account. You could also view it in a sense that this is the older McCartney only being able to summon the most vibrant and the most memorable memories to include in this song's lyrics like he isn't able to conjure those memories of what food was there or who was in the background you know it's just the stuff that impacted him in that moment you know Sammy Davis Jr Dean Martin that's what we get here and Paul seems to make it feel also very normal which it just isn't Lyrically, the song returns to a familiar and always welcome McCartney trope, whereby even though the whole thing is in a first-person perspective, the chorus has a very inviting, inclusive we and you, you know, come and enjoy yourself at Frank Snatcher's party, we had the greatest time. And again, when he says, you don't have to doubt yourself, what he's doing is, you know, he's making you, the listener, feel like that you would have actually been invited to one of these 
exceptionally A-list parties. You feel special, both conceptually and in being able to hear Maka recollect all of this. What's also great is that, despite the fact that Paul really doesn't go into that much detail in this party, you know, this is quite a lyrically sparse song, it's more about the groove, more about the techno feel, the vibe of the party atmosphere is still so vivid and palpable. Obviously, the sounds that we hear are not the sounds that would actually be playing at one of these titular parties at Frank Sinatra's palace. No, what we get are sounds that are designed to help take us on a certain sonic journey. And I don't know what inspired Paul to make this song a techno wizard stoner ditty, because if anything, the song sounds more like an after party. But when you consider that the whole song is also an older Paul looking backwards, then it all kind of starts to make sense. Because even the techno sound that McCartney's working in is in itself kind of retro. So for a 20-something in 2019, seeing a guy in his 70s doing some music from the 80s about a time in the 60s, it, it all kind of blends together sonically and conceptually as this dreamlike combination. One of my favourite bits, and I'm not sure if this is just me, or if it's even intentional in the mix, but when McCartney sings, Jump in the swimming pool, say hi to Dino Martin. The reverb on the voice almost sounds like he's underwater, like there's bubbles coming out of his mouth. I don't know if that's really there, but that's how I hear it, and I love it. The whole song, really, though, is full of these McCartney 2-style audio peculiarities, and they are there if you are willing to look for them. All right, Sam, calm down, I can hear some of you saying. Yes, this is just a cold cut slash hot hit at the end of the Egypt Station sessions, and obviously it isn't in Macca's all-time objective greatest songs ever, but I cannot stress enough that I have the softest of soft spots for this type of McCartney music. You know I love McCartney 2, you know I love the McCartney 2 bonus tracks, and the Fireman, and especially projects like Twin Freaks. So, for those of you paying attention, this should not be some great revelatory review or anything. And this is why it should also not surprise you that I am more than comfortable in saying right now that this song definitely should have been placed on the album in place of anything like People Want Peace, Hand in Hand, Do It Now, maybe even Confidante. Uh, all of those songs could have been reconsidered in place of this one. Yeah, sorry, Confidante. I, I have actually grown to like you somewhat with the live version we're going to talk about later, but I need more Techno McCartney in my life. And any of those songs delaying that by six months is just unforgivable. Though, if there was only one McCartney 2 type song allowed on this album, would I have put this on there in place of Back in Brazil? <sighs> That's a difficult one because Back in Brazil does fit onto the album so well. And I just, my experience of hearing it for the first time in order on the track listing was so special. I might have to come back to that one. It doesn't end there though either. Something even cooler about this song is that, and I imagine this is something that a lot of the songs of Egypt Station would have ultimately be, is that this song was actually taken right out of Paul's long and winding unpublished songbook. Then down in the comments of this song on YouTube, someone just typed in, this is Fishy Matters Underwater, and I was like, what the hell is that? So I went back to one of those massive compilation videos where it's just the various compilations and bootlegs of Macca's unreleased material in order, and you can't quite skip, and there's no timestamps, it's awful. And bam, there was Fishy Matters Underwater, and, and you can instantly recognise it 
as Frank Sinatra's party. It's the exact same beat, the exact same tune. And I actually had a bit of a deja vu moment because this is actually one of the songs that I'm going to be reviewing for the next upcoming Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode. Uh, that's part three, I think. Uh, let's hear a quick clip of Fishy Matters Underwater that Paul has plucked from obscurity to be his plus one at Frank Sinatra's party. This track was recorded in 76, by the way. Let's hear it. That's pretty damn cookie cutter clear. That is the exact same track. Now, I don't know how exactly this worked. Did Paul give Greg Kirsten all of his old riffs? And this was something that Kirsten chose. Is this like Kanye with All Day, where Maka whistles an old tune of his and Kirsten writes that down and says, Is that, you know, where did that come from? Can I use that? Or did Paul come into the sessions fucking 42 years later with the idea of finally finishing off that old track that he penned in the Wings era? It's an alluring rabbit hole for fans of hot hits and cold cuts like myself. And the best part of this whole Fishy Matters Underwater Frank Sinatra's party debacle is that Fishy Matters Underwater began as a track that could only make it as a Macca cold cut. And even now... You know, Mac has taken it to the studio, improved it, and completed it. And it's still not on a main album. It's still a Mac occult cut. Sorry, Fishy Matters Underwater. Sorry, Frank Snatcher's Party. Tough luck there. Right, final thoughts. Um, this is definitely going to be one of those prestigious songs that contrarian hipsters such as myself will forever love, as it is one of those fantastic what-if type songs where McCartney is letting us know that... Whilst he may not be putting the exact type of McCartney-ism or type of McCartney style that you specifically want onto the main album, it doesn't mean that he's still not working on them. Professor McCartney is alive and well, doing his research, and I only hope that he has some more surprises for us in the future. I highly recommend this one. Seriously, go check it out if you haven't already. In terms of the release in general, I'm happy for Egypt Station 2 to exist just to hear Frank Sinatra's party. And it's cool to know that Paul may have had the wisdom and foresight to hold back the best material for the final official release to at least make it somewhat worth purchasing. 62nd Street. Up next for Egypt Station 2, we have the next and sadly last of our brand new compositions. And you know what? Now that I think about it, we really haven't had any proper silly love songs in this supplementary Paul McCartney extravaganza. Well, thankfully Paul has written more of those type of tracks than I've had hot dinners, and we have another one for you now. And it's time to see what saccharine twiddle diddle didn't make it onto the official Egypt station. This is 62nd Street. Your 
thoughts on this one mostly to very positive i suppose you know one and a half thumbs up and all that but as i'm sat here right now talking to you i can't help but feel hyper aware that this isn't anything we haven't heard before across his entire career we have to some degree come to expect and accept this from paul now but i guess since egypt station felt so fresh even though it's still you know admittedly was still quite derivative I guess that when determining what songs went on the final album, if they felt that if any of these tracks were just not original enough that, yeah, of course they were going to be relegated to this disc. And it appears that this happened with 62nd Street. Because when I say that this is nothing we haven't heard before, I really wasn't kidding. I mean, rather annoyingly, the immediate comparison I wanted to make was with a song that we actually haven't covered yet on this show. So I'm not sure whether it's bad form or not. But to be fair, it's a song that we're going to talk about on Pods of Peace, our next full album review episode. So it's only right around the corner, which means I don't mind looking the other way this one time. Especially when the similarities are this pronounced. I'm just going to play a clip of the song now to illustrate my point. This is Sweetest Little Show from Pipes of Peace. Whilst 62nd Street manages to avoid being quite as sickeningly wholesome and quote-unquote sweet as the sweetest little show that you just heard, they both contain the same exuberance for silly nonsense melodies and love of niceness that is so pure McCartney. The other reason that this song reminds me of Pipes of Peace is that I could imagine this song being part of the collection of tunes that were presented to producer Greg Kirsten and would have been turned down and, you know, sorry Paul, you can do better than this, let's work on something else. It has that kind of tug-of-war, pipes of peace, writing session kind of vibe. And I can definitely hear Kirsten saying, no Paul, we'll just put this on the bonus disc. And that isn't meant to be taken as any indication of my own final opinions on the song, just that it's obvious what people are buying these days and what record companies want to hear and even what the fan base would be expecting to hear from Paul. And despite my own bias and positive leadings towards this admittedly throwaway ditty, even I have to admit that I totally understand why this wasn't on Egypt Station Major. I kind of wish it was, in an odd fucked up kind of way, but not so much that I would consider putting it above Nothing For Free, Frank Sinatra's Party, or even get enough but yeah enough comparisons to another song what do i actually think of 62nd street on its own terms well again it's saccharin macca or macarin as i will refer to it from now on you know what it's going to be and you know whether you're going to like it or not as with the majority of egypt station 62nd street does sound like it could genuinely have 
just like Frank Snatcher's party, have been extracted from some dusty tape from a house demo in 1972. But as far as I'm aware, this was indeed a brand new composition for the Egypt Station sessions. So if anything, this song in turn reflects how, for better or worse success or failure, Paul's writing has or hasn't evolved since day one. Lyrically, this is an adorably quaint McCartney tune that is a poster child for all the uber-kitsch, inconsequential, silly love song type vibes that Paul has always had an awkward working relationship with. But, as he said back in 76, What's wrong with that? Clearly Paul was in New York at some point, as he's so wont to do these days, and it must have clicked in his head that he could do a play on words with the place 62nd Street and the numerical unit of time of 60 seconds, and create a song out of it. Almost like another writing exercise, like Live and Let Die or Picasso's Last Words. You can see the little gears turning in McCartney's head and how the song was crafted, and I adore that about this song. You know, this isn't one of those silly love songs that does a, a, a wink and a nod to the, to the audience. It's totally sincere. It is 100% going for that pure, cheesy, heartstring-pulling lyric and delivery. And on an album that is rather notably lacking in silly love songs, I guess that makes it a little more effective. Big shout-out also goes to the most McCartney-ish lyrics I've heard on this whole album. It reads, The city's melting in the heat. I've got my flip-flops on my feet. You see me walking down 62nd Street. Flip-flops on my feet, Paul. Flip-flops? Oh, I love it. I mean, that is so fucking Paul. That is so McCartney. And I only wish that line could have made it onto the main album in some way. Come on, we can all picture the, the, the music video now. Paul in his flip-flops with Nancy. The thing shoots itself. I would argue, though, that this silly-ish lyricism does work. Why? Well, because Paul really sells it to you. Once again, we, we get that soft, hushed voice that Paul was working on with Egypt Station. And since we get this overly saccharine and since we get this overly macarin, overly sincere and whimsical Paul McCartney song coming from this wiser, grey version of Macca, what it ends up doing is diffusing a lot of the uh, lamer, eye-rolling factors that plague so many of his silly love songs. You know, whereas before he had to work really hard to achieve a lovey-dovey atmosphere, here Paul manages to make the whole thing feel a lot more natural and a lot less forced. Like the last two songs as well, I've become a real sucker for this track's vocal melody, which is oh so fun to sing along with, and the whispered singing style masks my horrible tone deafness, which is always a plus. The very best part of the vocal melody, obviously, is when the song shifts into these little breakdowns where he just starts going, do, 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 do. You know, let's just hear some of that now. Oh, I just, I, I cannot help but sing along to that. That is so catchy. Paul knows exactly what he is doing there. And he's really appealing to that dorky, inner, lame Paul McCartney fan inside of me. Like, I know Paul was the cute one, but how cute is he being here? The guitar playing itself is some of the most twee he has ever done. And I, I honestly love the way he plays the guitar on this one. I know it's very simple. It's not very complicated. And... And it's obviously one of the sappiest ways to play guitar with that kind of staccato stop-start-stop-start stop, start pattern, 
with a healthy dollop of corny country flourishes rounding it all out. But it just goes with the whole package, you know. It is this, this is one of the songs that is fully sentimental here, folks, and the guitar really helps that. Almost as if Paul is trying to make the guitar, an indisputably kind of cool instrument, as dorkily sweet as he is. Ultimately, though, it seems that Egypt Station was already awash with acoustic numbers and songs with Paul's hushed voice. So both of those factors together in one song, along with the fact that this album was already steering away from the sillier of silly love songs, I guess 62nd Street was always going to be relegated to the bonus disc. Would it have tipped the balance if it was included on the main album in place of, say, Do It Now? I hope not, because this song, whilst obviously having shiny new song syndrome, has already become one of my favourite Macca tracks from this period, and I only hope the same can be said for the rest of the wider fanbase. Even though, objectively, it is one of the least original tracks he's done in a while. Who cares? Full length. Our next song is going to be the only remix of an existing track that we get from Egypt Station today, and honestly, whilst I thought we might get more remasters and remixes and the like on an album like this, the presence of only one really must indicate A, how satisfied Paul must have been with the rest of the album as a whole, and B, how much Paul really wants us to hear the full experience of what this song has to offer. There really must be something worth hearing here. Because now, with this opportunity that he's been afforded, he is about to show us, the second time around, how Who Cares is supposed to sound. This is Who Cares. had a couple of McCartney remixes over the years, Say Say Say, uh, notably has several versions, etc. But never really in the sense that, you know, you get some other DJ slash producer to create different versions of songs slapped onto the ends of albums for the sake of it. Paul doesn't really do that a lot anyway, possibly on certain singles and promotional releases. But Paul's remixes of his own music rarely ever feature a kind of hands-off approach and instead usually end up expanding themselves into full-blown projects like Twin Freaks and The Firemen. Whereas here, we actually have a case whereby Paul basically relents and says, this is the proper version, apparently, of the song, but I couldn't fit it onto the album. I think it's length that that is the only reason that we didn't get this on Egypt Station Major. Because... That's all this song is. This isn't an, like a remix where the first 3 minutes and 13 seconds are a slightly different version of Who Cares. No, no, this is Who Cares as we know it with just an extra 2 minute and 22 second jam slapped onto the end. And, I mean, you just heard it then. That's pretty much all you're going to get. It doesn't go anywhere particularly from there or give you anything that you didn't get the first time around. 
Like, if this song never existed, there would be nothing to indicate to us as an audience that there was ever anything missing from this song to begin with. And that's the rub. This is possibly the most pointless, extraneous, unneeded addition on the whole album. Who cares that Who Cares could have gone on a bit longer? No one. I guess I, I, I feel kind of annoyed because if there was an extended version of Who Cares and McCartney's been playing Who Cares live all this time, then why wasn't this like a the cool live version of Who Cares? And we're actually going to get a live version of Who Cares later on this album to make it a third one. So if Paul had simply played this extended version live, then we could have saved track space on here, certainly. But it certainly would have made the tour a, li a little bit more special. It would have gotten people talking like, ooh, there's this extended different version, a different way he, he performs this song live in the way that they performed Beware My Love li differently live in the Wings Over America tour back in 76. But no, we just get it randomly slapped on this bonus tr on this bonus album. Oh god, it, this is so hard to review really. Like maybe if it had contrasted the main song in some sort of way and taken a sharp turn that none of us saw coming, you know, maybe it would have made us reevaluate the song or you, you you know, maybe something that would help prove that this song is actually about bullying or something. Anything to warrant this track's appearance on this album. But no, it's just the band playing with the riff in a very scratchy, acoustic, we're letting our hair down in the studio kind of way. What it should be is an opportunity for the band to show that they are more than just the Macca backing group and let it rip, a la the end of Get Started, which in itself could be a good remix, I might go and experiment with that later. But instead, what we get has no teeth at all. Brevity is the soul of wit, and I can't help that it sounds like Paul is being particularly self-indulgent with this one and is really trying to forcibly fix something that was never broken. That being said, before we do move on, I do admit right now, I do actually prefer a, an, another remix that Paul did of Who Cares, but he did it on a MIDI kind of keyboard retro version of the song that you can hear at the end credits of the Who Cares music video, and I think this is the best excuse to hear some of that now too. When you consider that three-fifths of this number is literally one of the highly promoted singles from the parent album and that it has an upcoming live version in just four short songs time, then you might understand why I think that this is filler of the highest order. I guess I was just expecting a little bit more here. Not sure what I would have preferred, but this extended jam version of a song essentially takes what was a bit of a run-and-gun number, as far as McCartney's concerned, and then mires it down with this indulgent, poorly justified little twang session. You know, I can't believe Paul would put out something this middle of the road the second time around. Like, I can understand if he put this out accidentally and then retconned it in the future, but he thought that this was worth putting out there. I honestly don't understand it. Once again, in the classic vein on this podcast of bits of trivia about the song being more interesting than the song itself, 
Once again, this song's inclusion on the album, specifically its placement, is confusing as hell because it's placed in such a way as to separate Get Enough from the rest of the original compositions. Like, this is an original track and not just a remix of a track that we've heard already. Once again, never made an album, never organised a track listing or anything like that, but wouldn't it have made more sense? Wouldn't it have been more of a logical flow to have all of the original compositions ending with Get Enough, then have the remix or remixes, which would be just this one track, and then all the live tracks? It just breaks my brain, it doesn't seem to work properly, and that's what I've spent most of my time thinking about, rather than enjoying the 2 minutes and 12 seconds of twaddle. Get enough! The next song we are discussing here today is one of the few songs on this podcast that has had an entire episode dedicated to it, the only other so far being Wonderful Christmas Time. This is a song that has been wonderfully divisive and explosive and has made so many people cross. And it is a song that, of course, appeals to my inner contrarian devil's advocate troll than any other in recent years. And for good reason. You know what this one is, it's Get Enough. Do you remember? Now and then I see your face I've been wanting to love and embrace I've been looking for love But it gets me nowhere Oh yeah, yeah Yes, this is the song that I probably should have the least to say about, as it is the freshest in my mind. And if nothing else, this podcast has been a testament as to how opinions on Macca's songs can change over time, but, but nothing really has with this one. Of course, I've listened to this song since, and I've listened to it a couple of times for the sake of review in this episode. And whilst it doesn't make for a compelling review, rather like Get Started, the honest truth is is that my opinions haven't changed at all. This is an incredibly interesting Paul McCartney song for me. It's still one of the boldest musical statements in a song that he's put out there for quite a while, and I can only commend him for that. Yes, it's hardly innovative to use auto-tune, but... For Paul McCartney in his 70s to use it in the way he did, contextually, it was pretty bold. And for that reason, this song automatically garners a kernel of my genuine respect. You know, I've always had an affinity for Paul's songs that are just all over the place, where he just has this swirling miasma of ideas in his mind, and he's trying to make sense of all of them, and trying to contextualise all of them, and balance them all, and spin all these plates. And I don't know whether... This track is innovation, or whether it is worst judge of taste for donkey's years. Um, again, the use of auto-tune is now semi-notorious in this little community of ours. One of my favourite parts of this song has been going on to other podcasts, uh, whether Paul McCartney ones or Beatles ones, of which there are frightfully many. And I was able to hear all manner of people react to Paul's obviously Kanye-based musical infection. Everyone was either repulsed and couldn't listen to it, 
or they just lost their shits. And so therefore I feel honoured being one of the few willing to defend Paul on this one, even if objectively it isn't very good. That being said, it is a Paul McCartney hill that I'm willing to climb up and die upon. You know, I will defend Paulie Boy's use of auto-tune, regardless of how many other people say otherwise. If anything, it actually strengthens my resolve, as it is fortunate that my genuine opinion and the opinion of the trolls actually line up for once. Being the last of the Tedder collaborations on this collection, this will be my last opportunity, of course, to say that it's a shame that most of the out-there stuff ne never made it onto the main album. This is the weirdest of the weird stuff, and I could only imagine how divisive this track would have been if it had come out back in September. Christ, it probably would have even overshadowed all of the Trump climate change slash anti-bullying talks that were surrounding Egypt Station. As I mentioned before, not too sure why this song comes in after the extended version of Who Cares, as it makes this song look separate from the actual new content, but oh well. It's probably best to have some of Paul's most strange work um, before we arrive at the last hurrah of live tracks. So yeah, I like this song. For the right reasons, for the wrong reasons, ironically and unironically. But either way, and I probably said this last time as well, I can't get enough of Get Enough. The live songs. Then we come to the part of the disc, the part of the album that I was looking least forward to talking about, aka the last four songs. And what you're going to hear with all of these live versions of Egypt Station material, featured on Egypt Station 2, are all performances that are all going to be predictively safe interpretations by Paul and his touring band, aka the band who were mostly on much of the album itself. Though when I say interpretation, I mean it in the sense that they interpreted the tracks directly, because this is going to be a quadrilogy of carbon copy, same as the album version renditions of these tunes. And folks, without me having to explain this over and over again for each of these individual reviews, I'm going to save you some time when I say that this album space is going to, is going to be truly wasted. When you consider that McCartney and the gang have had six months to come up with something to fill these four tracks and this is the best, you know? We've just heard these tracks not only a few minutes ago on this album as well, but we probably heard them on the tour as well. And they're not different in any way. Like, just offer us something new. We are being literally sold the same thing again here, and it does feel a little sleazy. It just comes across as a horrendously lazy and unimaginative move on the part of the people who put out this release. I mean, do they seriously consider that everything on this album is worth the price that you're paying for it? Again, I only have to draw your attention to the fantastic Wings 71-73 to release which had Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway and that was packed to the brim with bonus stuff. And now that I think about it, maybe they knew they were going to be releasing a bonus disc but when the time finally came they just didn't have enough material. And I feel like if I eventually do buy the Explorers edition then, mm, then there's going to be a whole side or a whole disc that I'm basically never going to play. And that's not exciting. On top of that, the stark contrast between Paul McCartney, the crafted studio album experience, pitted against Paul McCartney, the live experience, for me felt all too jarring. And its execution doesn't really work out in Macca's favour, in my opinion. Like, when you go through this masterful production of Greg Kirsten and Ryan Tedder to these live performances, I kind of feel the veil gets lifted and you are presented with a Paul that is, for lack of a nicer term, 
not performing at his peak anymore. Like, when you go to the full show and there's a complement of Beatles songs and all of his little interjections and his crowd play and, you, and you're there for three hours and, you, and you're experiencing it, then yeah, it is really fun and really exciting and you, you don't really mind the voice. But when you're presented with it here and that you are buying it and you are supposedly meant to listen to it over and over again, it just stops working. Like, duh, obviously we weren't going to get stuff like a live version of Domino's that has backwards guitar, etc, etc. But, aside from Confidant, we don't have any unique or precious relics to speak of. It would have been fantastic if, throughout the Freshen Up tour, maybe on just a couple of shows here or there, Paul would be like, Right guys, tonight we are finally going to do Caesar Rock, or Despite Repeated Warnings, or even I Don't Know, which I'm shocked hasn't really been milked for the live format yet. I was actually quite shocked at that one when I saw him live as well. If anything, all of these tracks are going to act more as a catalogue, you know, one of those time capsules that will account for all of the surrounding Egypt tour promotional material, taking the appropriate songs from the appropriate shows, rather than really attempting to create, you know, the definitive live versions and instead it's going to be, oh, this is when Paul was here, this is when Paul was here, this is when Paul was there. How interesting. That's it. Again, I know I'm probably sounding a little bit harsh and this may just be another example of me being far too deep in the culture. And I guess for posterity and the future, it'll be nice to have these performances to listen to again. But in terms of the here and now, mm, a little more could have been done, I feel. With these live reviews, obviously, by their, their very nature, that they're not going to be anywhere near as long or meandering as the regular reviews, because, well, you've heard the songs before. Not that there's a lot to talk about here, but if you want my full two cents on those tracks, then go and check out our first full Egypt Station episode. And now let's go on to the first of these live numbers. Come on to me! Live at Abbey Road Studios. So we move on to the first of our songs on today's list, and we aren't even at the bit where I've revealed the title yet and I have stuff to address. I may or may not have spent a large portion of our initial Egypt Station episode going over how much of the album was constructed with this nod and a wink Beatles fanboy rose-tinted nostalgia element. And yes, that may have bored you to death, but it's coming back again, because never has that been more apparent and alive than with our first live Egypt Station track coming from Abbey Road Studios, it's Come On To Me. No points for anyone if you guessed that there was going to be a live version of Come On To Me on this bonus disc. Paul clearly loves this song and he really pushed it during all of the media hype and for the Freshen Up tour following Egypt Station, so it makes sense that he wanted to show that this song really does get a crowd going, as it did with me last September. I remember unironically loving this song when it came on with its silly little bow, 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 bow. 
Even though all of these Egypt Station live performances, like I say, somewhat reveal the fact that Paul is not wearing any clothes, the Emperor he is, you can certainly tell, especially here with Come On To Me, that they've chosen the strongest vocal performances that Paul has given from what they've had to choose with. They still ain't great, but it's much better than anyone in the media gives him credit for. And the little bit where he does the yeah, 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 is so well done. And it just and it just fills you with this kind of fuck you, fuck yeah energy that Paul still got it. And he's still making you feel <laughs> this excited. It's, it's a really fun experience, even if, yeah, the performance isn't that great. I can't go into, into too much detail on any of these. The performance is what it is. I'm sure if you find any of the clips of Egypt Station performed live in this period and you pit it against these four songs, you're going to hear the same thing. Though I would say Abe's drumming is particularly strong in this one. He's the one that really keeps the crowd moving. And probably more so than any of the other tracks, the band does such a fucking faithful rendition here. And whilst with some of the other tracks, maybe being a bit too faithful would be a detriment, with a, a very basic, cheesy rock and roll number like Come On To Me, it does work in its favour somewhat. Though I think he does actually get the lyrics wrong in the second verse, which explains why in James Corden's Carpool Karaoke, he, both of them clearly needed the lyrics up on their phones. For you, live at the Cavern Club. Moving swiftly on from Abbey Road, a seminal Beatles location designed to catch the eye of an avid Beatle fanboy and collector everywhere, to another seminal Beatles location designed to catch the eye of an avid Beatle fanboy and collector everywhere, only this time we really are going back to the place where it all began, to milk every rose-tinted teary-eyed penny that the Beatles' legacy is still worth, with Fur You, live at the Cavern Club. Come on, baby, now. Let me look at you Talk about yourself Try to tell the truth I can stay up all night Trying to crack it cold I can stay up half the night Might have rather hit the road On the night that I met you I was on the town On the night that I met you I just want to Again, not an awful lot to say about this one. After having seen Paul at the O2 last December, I can honestly say that I've heard this exact performance with literally 0% deviation, which is a bit of a shame because you would have thought that either by design or by default that being underground in this locale in the cavern would have some sort of effect, but it doesn't. Though this cavern gig, like we're going to see with Confidante in a moment, regardless of being a promotional show, was very exclusive. And bar a few bars of Magical Mystery Tour on YouTube, this is all we have of that gig. So again, for us regular folk, as well as any fans who never got to go on any of the Freshen Up Tour, a tour which is, by the way, still ongoing at time of recording. But yeah, for those unlucky fans, this is a nice addition for them, but it's unlikely to ever get another play from me. Though before I move on, I'm not sure how much of this particular number is like a backing track, because it's really complex. And if it's not, then Paul Wixy Wickens has certainly got his work cut out for him with this phantasmagorical number. And I can just imagine him trying to play four keyboards with both hands and both feet trying to keep up. Yeah, I love Fur You. It's one of my favourite tracks from Egypt Station. 
it's nice to hear it again in this live version here, but there's always going to be that part of me going, oh, Sam, you can just find a live version of this song for YouTube on free. And I'm thinking maybe MPL doesn't quite get that. Confidant, live at Lipper. Next up is our third live rendition of an Egypt Station track, and thankfully the team behind this album actually have gone and done something right. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. We actually get to hear something we haven't fucking heard before. At least not like this anyway. This is Confidant, live at Lipper. In our imaginary world Where butterflies wear army boots Stop around the forest Chanting long last anthems Long last anthems Those of you who don't know, Lippa is the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, which is a university slash educational centre of which Paul McCartney is a patron and it's a centre where you can learn to become an actor or a musician, anything in the, or an artist, anything in the high arts. And Paul, being the patron that he is, occasionally does the odd live gig there. And I was honestly pleasantly surprised that they included it on this album, mostly because when I saw Macket in London last year and looked at the rest of the Freshen Up tour, I, I never saw Confidant. I, I, I never knew he played this live. In fact, this song is so rare that it's only ever been performed by Paul in an official capacity, i.e. not a sound check, a total of two other times. The first being the Cavern gig that we heard just prior, and the other being part of the Under the Staircase gig for the music app Spotify. Uh, under the staircase obviously being a reference to the lyrics of confidant so now you know 75 billion issues of this album six months and a bunch of episodes later we can now finally hear this fucker and it's probably the closest thing we're gonna get to a rare cold cut for this album i'm not sure whether the novelty of the rarity of this track is what's doing it for me but there is something so wonderfully wholesome and quaint about this track that i really quite like I mean, when we compare Confidant to other live versions on this album, we end up with Confidant coming off as the most well-realised in the live format. Yes, all of these songs are the easiest tracks off the album, lacking all of the complicated bells and whistles, but Confidant is just executed with much more precision. Not in the sort of way where it's so close to the album version that it's pointless, but just in the sense that nothing was lost in the translation process, and you could really feel the vibe that the album was going for as well. Though, to break character, there is this uh, wonderful musical breakdown towards the middle, though, and there's this addition of this like, cheery accordion that is either not on the record at all, or is just buried in the mix. But either way, it's this welcome element of originality that the Paul McCartney Live show, the live experience, in my opinion, could use a little more of, and it did make me smile. Yep, I really like this one. In fact, I'm probably a little more fond of this version than I am the regular old album version. Now that's a little against character for me too, but 
I see something oh so chaste and unpretentious about this live version that I cannot help but favour it a little bit more. Like, the album version was a little too corny for me in spots. Not every time I listened to it, but certainly the, the odd time I was just like, ooh, ooh, well, what is this? And some kind of combination of the crowd, Paul's live voice, and the reverberation of a real live acoustic guitar being there in front of the mic creates a more vivid experience than all of Greg Kirsten's production ever could. And that only speaks to the strength of the songwriting also. Who cares? Live at Grand Central Station. And last up on today's episode is not only a song we have covered before, but it is a song that we have covered before on this very episode. And the performance it's taken from is also a live performance that we've covered on this show too. Yes, this really is going to be a trip down memory lane with Who Cares? Live at Grand Central Station. First things first, everyone. Paul, what are you doing including another fucking version of this song on this album, mate? Come on now. If you were always planning on doing an extended version of Who Cares, then when it came to doing four songs from this album for the tour, then maybe you should have picked a different song instead so you'd have one extra in the bag. Maybe you could have alternated the set list a little so you wouldn't end up with three versions of Who Cares on this album. I know you like this song, I know there's a big anti-bullying campaign push with this one, but we didn't need three. We did not need three. And the fact that we've got three versions of Who Cares is just a testament to how rigid and restrictive your three-hour Titanic set list somehow are. We have other doable songs from this album. We have Happy With You. We have Back In Brazil. And again, I don't know. Or even the song that I'm sure he was going to be plugging across the entire tour, People Want Peace, with a, a remix going into Give Peace a Chance. That would, that would have been awesome. And now that I look at the... And now that we're at the end of the album... <laughs> You know, this does feel like it, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel and that this might be everything from the Egypt Station sessions weren't sharing that's not going to go on to the next album. That being said, out of all of the live tracks here, it is Who Cares that I was oddly the most looking forward to because, well, should I say I was looking forward to listening to a live version of Who Cares because when I saw Paul, that was the one that he belted out to that crowd of 20,000 rabid fans that really set me off. And I was going to be more than happy to relive that experience. But the experience I got was from the live in Grand Central Station gig, which, as you know, I reviewed on a gig review episode that I did a few months ago back with Robert Stevenson. I wasn't too plussed about the performance of Who Cares back then either, and the same can be said now. And that's, just, and, and that, and that's simply because it's just standard. It is just unremarkable. Yes, the Live at Grand Central Station gig was a huge part of the Egypt Station media campaign, but again, it's also a show that was uploaded in its entirety to YouTube. So for me, this just doesn't feel quite as special as the others. 
And there we are, ladies and gentlemen. We have come to the end of our review of Egypt Station 2. What are my overall thoughts on this release? Well, I think you can pretty much guess. It, Egypt Station 2 as a disc on its own is a very interesting piece. It's this r seemingly random collection of songs that haven't been organised in any way, and yet in certain aspects they, 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 they have been organised to create quite a strange package indeed. I've said my piece on the live versions. I do think they are filler. They are rather unnecessary. Who cares? The extended version is a complete waste of disc space. And I just cannot believe that we do not have more early takes of the, of any of this stuff. I know that Paul might be a little bit more self-conscious, you know, putting out some of his demos in his latter years. But that's what I really come for. I love hearing Paul just going... Do, 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 just on his own with his, with his guitar, doing a bit of tapping for his percussion, anything like that that like, pulls back the curtain. That's what I want to see. Seeing Paul live in this latter period especially is not something I really feel like Capital or MPL should be pushing at all. And the lack of remixes available just shows a, not, not a lack of creativity, but just... I feel like there's a missed opportunity in terms of scope as to what Egypt Station 2 could have been. They've had six months, folks. They've had six months to craft this and put something together. And aside from all the extraneous tot that you got in the Traveller's Kit and the lovely artwork you get with the Explorer set, this does feel a little bit rushed, a little bit thrown together. And dare I say it, a little bit unfinished. Some of the songs are fantastic. Frank Sinatra's Party, Nothing For Free and to some degree, 62nd Street are going to be with me for quite a while, I feel, but there really could have been so much more with Egypt Station 2. What did you guys think? Please let me know your thoughts. Email the show at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I'd love to get a dialogue going around this album in particular, because there are some real strange cuts on this one. I could feel a lot of the songs on this album sparking some quite interesting chit-chat indeed. Obviously, hit me up on Twitter as well. That is the quickest way to get in contact with the show, which is at McCartneyPod. Check out our sister blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on YouTube and Facebook, simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. And finally, if you like what I'm doing here at the show, if you like what we've been doing despite our... If you'd like to, to show some appreciation or you feel like you'd be the kind of person who would like to buy me a drink if you ever met me, then... Check out our Patreon. It's the best way to help contribute to the show. You all know what Patreon is. But we already have a, a couple of patrons now. I'm eternally grateful for them. They they know who they are. They are the lifeblood of this show. And obviously the goal is to hopefully acquire a few more patrons. And that would allow me to spend even more time on this show. Thank you all for listening, folks. I know we've had a, a couple of delays. You probably listened to the little episode I released shortly, but I wanted to have this episode up as quick as possible just to wet your beaks. Our Wings Over Europe and Live Over Groningen episode is written and ready to go. Pipes of Peace is also around the corner as well, and I'm already having fun writing the next Hot Hits and Cold Cut, writing the next Hot Hits and Cold Cut episode, as well as the upcoming Yellow Submarine film review. Um, also, there's the Conspiracies episode that I do one day intend to finish off, but I've, I've just become so stressed out with that one that I'm going to delay that one slightly. Thank you all for listening, folks. Thank you all for listening, folks. Thank you all for your unending loyalty and your kind words and support during this time. Paul or Nothing is still fast on track. We've got a lot to cover. I'm very excited for the future of this show. 
Thank you for listening once again. Check out all the links down below. You know what to do. Denny Lane's already playing us out by now, I am sure. Peace and love, peace and love. Keep listening to Paul. See you next time. <laughs>